Our uh, Bible reading tonight comes from Romans chapter 3, so I'd encourage you to uh, open that up now. And we're going to uh, read the verses uh, 9 through to 26. So we're reading from Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. And the word should also be up on the screen. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin, of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Amen. So friends, in this um, Living Theology series that we've been working through, we've been covering a variety of different topics. And they're all matters which the Lord, in his word, has revealed to us as being of vital importance. Important for life, important for faith, and important for salvation. And at this present moment, we're actually looking at the area of sin. So two weeks ago, I preached on Genesis chapter 3, as we considered why there is all this trouble, suffering and evil in this world. We saw how it all began as Adam and Eve gave in to temptation, rebelled against their creator and were banished from his presence. It was our first parents who inaugurated sin. But then last week, if you were here, you would have heard Reuben speak about Romans chapter 5. And there in that chapter, God explains to us that Adam's sin 
has serious implications for us today. For as Adam rebelled, he represented the entire human race. And so we have inherited his sin, his guilt, and his curse. In fact, we are now born with a sinful nature. And we call this the doctrine of original sin. But this leaves us with a question. For we cannot help but wonder, how is it actually fair that Adam's sin is imputed to us and we are now born under judgment? How could this be fair when we actually could prove that unlike him, we can live the perfect holy life that our God requires? Well, my friends, that's why alongside of this doctrine, we also need to understand the doctrine of personal sin. For this reminds us that regardless of how boldly we may proclaim our ability to live a a faultless and pure life, in reality we very quickly prove the opposite. We prove by our own actions that our condemnation is well deserved. In question and answer 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism it says, God is terribly angry about the sin we are born with as well as the sins we personally commit. In chapter 6 of the Westminster Confession, it says that every sin, both original and actual, bring guilt upon the sinner. And so we need to understand about original sin and personal sin. They go hand in hand. But at this point, you might be wondering to yourself, why would we want to delve into this further tonight? I mean, isn't it all rather miserable and rather negative? Wouldn't it be better for us to focus on the solution rather than the problem? I mean, plenty of churches don't even mention sin, so why why would we mention it here? Well, my friends, the reason is because the more that we understand just how sinful we are, the more we will grieve over the things that we do. And the more that we will long for God's forgiveness. And the more that we will marvel at what Jesus has done. And the more that we will rejoice in the mercy of our Lord. And the more we will love and trust and serve him every single day. It's not until we plumb the depth of our own misery that we can truly rise to the very summit of rejoicing in Christ. As Jesus said of the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, who washed his feet with her tears and her perfume, he said, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, and as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. My friends, the more we comprehend the gravity of our own failings, the more we will be moved to love our God of grace. So let's see what we can learn about this tonight. Well, first of all, the Bible teaches us about the essential nature of our personal sin. What exactly is it? Well, there are various ways it can be described. Missing the mark, immorality, wickedness, failure, rebellion... But at its core, sin is quite simply law-breaking. We see that already in Genesis chapter 3. 
the Lord gave Adam and Eve a single command. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was that single command that they broke. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband and he ate it. We also saw it in our reading a moment ago from Romans chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. For through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And we see it most plainly in 1 John chapter 3. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now, my friends, this may be more significant than you realise, for it reminds us that when it comes to right and wrong, it's not us who make the rules, but it is the Lord. As humans, we have this astonishing ability to think that we know better and to set our own standards. For example, there are people today who say that it's evil to kill an animal for food. But God says no such thing. At the very same time, there are people today who say it's not evil to kill an unborn baby. But God has much to say about that. But this is nothing new. Listen to what the Lord says in Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. But if the essential nature of sin is breaking God's law, then that also reminds us that sin is ultimately against God. For example, King David clearly sinned against Bathsheba in adultery and against Uriah, her husband, as in murder. But yet in Psalm 51, he says to the Lord, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You know, this is so important in our day and age when people often will say to us, it doesn't matter so long as no one gets hurt. Well, it does matter because if it's against the will of God, then it is grievous in his sight. So the true definition of sin is that it is breaking God's law. But where do we find this law? Well, my friends, we find it throughout the entire Bible. We can think of the Ten Commandments, which in many ways are foundational for all the rest. We can think of many specific commands throughout the Old Testament. We can think of the history and the narratives that reveal man's struggle to obey God's law. We can think of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus reinforces God's will. We can think of his summary of the law, to love God with all our heart and our neighbour as ourselves. And we can think of various lists of vices and virtues in the epistles and so on. But friends, we need to realise that these laws are not random or vindictive. No, these laws are the Lord's perfect guidelines, which are in fact designed to give us the best possible life, lived in harmony with himself and with each other and with creation. They're his impeccable instructions that he followed 
lead us to great blessing. And so the Bible shows how the Lord wants us to live in a way that is both pleasing to him and beneficial to ourselves. But the Bible also shows how dreadfully we fail. For despite knowing his rules, we disobey them. And every time we do, we sin. So sin is law-breaking. But we also need to understand that sin is universal. What this means is that even though we may think that it is possible for a person to live a perfect life, there is absolutely no one who actually does. Everyone is both born in sin and born sinning in their own personal life. That's why in 1 Kings chapter 8 it says, there is no one who does not sin. And in Psalm 143, no one living is righteous before you. And in 1 John chapter 1, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. We also see this in our text from Romans chapter 3. You may have seen how Paul quotes a litany of Old Testament passages reinforcing this same point and then he concludes saying there is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not one single person in this world or one single person in your life who is not a sinner. But why then is it that we know of people who are so, so nice and so caring, always doing what's good and right? How can we say that they are sinful? Well, my friends, we need to remember Galatians chapter 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And we also need to remember James chapter 2. For James says, For whoever keeps the whole law, but yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking it all. You see, sinfulness is not like tiredness, where you can be a little bit tired or you can be a lot tired. Sinfulness is more like pregnancy, where either you are or you aren't. Just as you can't be a little bit pregnant, so you can't be a little bit sinful. Every person is totally sinful, regardless of how moral or how kind they may look from a human perspective, because everyone has failed to keep God's law perfectly. My friend, sin is universal. But then our next point, we need to understand that, that sin is also pervasive. And what I mean by that is that it comes in just so many, many different forms and we just need to be alert to them all. And so, for example, we are able to sin in action, word and thought. The Ten Commandments include sins that involve action, like stealing. Sins that involve words, like lying. Sins that involve thoughts, like coveting. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds us that anger is equivalent to murder and looking lustfully equivalent to adultery. In God's sight, the sins that we commit privately in our own minds are no less than those that we publicly act out. We also should remember that even though all sin is ultimately against God, as we saw earlier, 
It can also be against ourselves, against our neighbour or against creation. For example, worshipping a false deity or materialism, are sins directly against God. Drunkenness or addiction are sins against ourselves. Gossip or slander are sins against others. Cruelty to animals is a sin against creation. And so we should be aware of all of these areas. But we must also remember that there are both sins of commission and of omission. Sins of commission are things we actually do, like abusing your spouse or watching pornography. Sins of omission are things that we fail to do, like failing to forgive, failing to use your gifts, failing to be a witness for Christ. Think of Romans chapter 7 where Paul says this, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. There are also other ways to categorise sin. It can be a one-off act or an ongoing way of life. It can be intentional and malicious or it can be ignorant and accidental. And my friend, sin can even arise when we are trying to do something good, but yet we do it with wrong motives. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And you may remember how he goes on to give examples of giving, praying, and as we talked about this morning, fasting. The point is that sin is not just the obvious, but it's also the subtle. Things like pride and disrespect, laziness and worry, putting your own leisure before God, or being ashamed of God, failing to be generous or hospitable, or serving the Lord for all the wrong reasons. As we ponder this, we realise that even though we may not be murderers or robbers in that blatant, literal sense, we are all still sinners through and through. We need to realise that sin is pervasive. But our next point is that sin is also attractive. And that's well worth pondering. You see, when we talk about this topic, we may think, for example, that stealing is repulsive. But for the thief, it's alluring. We might think that illicit drugs are harmful, but for the addict, well, they look so good. We may think that adultery is the last thing we'd want to get involved in, but for the person who is trapped in an affair, it's the most wonderful thing in the world. Do you remember how Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom? Do you remember how King David saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful? Do you remember how Judas asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. But my friends, the very same thing applies in whatever sin is tempting us. It makes us feel good when we criticise others. It makes us happy when we stay at home instead of meeting with God's people. 
It makes us feel powerful when we swear and blaspheme. It makes us feel important when we always talk about ourselves. It makes us feel satisfied to follow our own desires instead of following the Lord's. Sin is attractive. That's, and that's why we're so often slow to see it in ourselves. In Psalm 19 it says, But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. And in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? We need to be so alert, don't we, to the ways that we ourselves are tempted. For sin won't repulse us, but it will actually seduce us. And so we need to examine our own lives and our own hearts just so carefully. But my friends, we also need to listen and react with humility when someone else alerts us to our wrongdoing. So we've seen some aspects of personal sin. We've seen that it is law-breaking, it's universal, it's pervasive and attractive. But we must also understand that sin is serious. You see, my friends, we live in a time when many people think that it's nothing more than a, than a joke. They think it's minor, laughable, of little concern. They think that even if there is a God, well, he doesn't really care how, the, how we live. I mean, that's why there are so many non-Christian funerals where they claim that the deceased is now in some version of heaven but they're very much mistaken. You see, sin is serious because sin has consequences. And there are two sides to this. Now, I'm only going to touch on this very briefly because Reuben's going to dig into it a bit deeper next week. But let me just mention the two main effects of sin. First of all, sin causes trouble in our own lives. If we perfectly obeyed God's law, then we would have a perfect life. But as it is, we face a whole host of struggles because of our own sin, because of the sin of others against us, because of the general sin in our society and our world. And that, my friends, is why our lives are full of struggle. We suffer from mental health issues and physical ailments. Relationships are strained and work is a battle. We have fear and anxiety, we have loneliness and we have grief. And my friends, even in the very best of times, we still feel that life is never quite what it is supposed to be. But secondly, sin places us under God's judgment. In Romans chapter 1 it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. In Romans chapter 6, we're told, for the wages of sin is death. In Revelation chapter 21, it says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. My friends, sin is no joke. It ruins our lives and it makes us guilty in God's sight. 
worthy of his judgment and deserving of his condemnation. Let's never forget the seriousness of sin. But that brings us to our final point and our most important point, and that is that sin is also forgivable. For my friends, while God most certainly wants us to be alert to our own transgressions and to understand the gravity of our rebellion, he also wants us to know without any shadow of a doubt the wonder of his grace. For if you truly long for a solution to this awful problem, well, my friends, I'm here tonight to tell you that the Lord has provided You see, the whole reason why Jesus came was to rescue us from sin and all its terrible consequences. In Matthew chapter 1, the angel said to Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, it says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? To save sinners. Friends, while we know that we've rejected our God in so many ways, our God has not rejected us. His holiness and his justice demand that sin be punished. But yet he took that punishment and laid it on his own son. My friends, our Lord Jesus Christ was willing to take our place when he suffered on that cross. And all that he asks of us is that we confess our sin, turn to him in faith, and accept his free gift of forgiveness. And so I'm compelled to ask you tonight, have you confessed your sinfulness before God? Have you asked Jesus to lift that burden from your shoulders and to wash you clean? Have you put your trust in him alone for your salvation? Have you experienced the wonderful, wonderful grace of our God? If you're here tonight and you have never truly, humbly and personally put your hope in Jesus, well then I'm sorry but you're still in your sin. And so I want to implore you to please think about these things. Think about your standing before God, both now and in eternity. Hear his call in your heart and turn to him in repentance and faith. But my friends, if you have done this, well then I urge you to rejoice. For friends, even though our sin is so terribly serious, we can experience God's forgiveness, full and complete, both now and always. Don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean that we're not going to fail anymore, but it does mean that we will not do so without remorse and repentance, knowing that we still belong to God. And it doesn't mean that we will never face troubles that our sins might cause, for we can still damage our relationship with God and our relationship with others. But it does mean that we can never, ever lose the eternal salvation that Jesus purchased for us. 
And so, my friends, I hope that this afternoon we have seen that we are not only affected by original sin, as we saw last week, but also by our own personal sin. Every one of us is a lawbreaker, seduced into sins of every kind, deserving of the wrath of God. I hope this afternoon that we've better understood the problem. For as Paul said in our text, there is no one righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But do you remember what comes next? He says that yet we can be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. For God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received how? To be received by faith. Sin is such a terrible problem, but our Lord, our loving, gracious, merciful Lord has provided the greatest solution. For in Jesus Christ we can find forgiveness full and free. And when we experience that for ourselves, then we cannot help but rejoice and give to him all worship and glory and praise. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Lord God and loving Father, it's not easy to to think about sin. Lord, it's a topic that we often feel is, is negative and unhelpful. But Lord, I do pray that you will help every one of us to realise that it's not until we have fully understood sin that we can fully understand your grace. Lord, I pray that even tonight we have been helped to look into that terrible chasm of what we have done and what we deserve and then to realise just how great your salvation is. Lord, I pray that we would be serious about our sin, that you would work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit and convict us, not just of the obvious things, but the subtle things. And Lord, I pray that as you do that, that we would draw nearer and nearer to you, being more and more amazed at just how loving you are toward us. For Father, we deserve none of this, but yet you have showered us with your mercy. Father, we pray, please help us to know the heights of your love. Lord, help us to rejoice in these things. Lord, help us to be filled with thankfulness and praise. And Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.